What are you doing here this morning? Well, I could tell you what you're doing here this morning. You're seeking life. Now, what do I mean by that? We know and we understand that when we pursue life as human beings, that we're not just interested in physically breathing in and out. Of course, we're interested in that. We want to continue that as long as possible. But we know of situations where physical life continues, and yet we would say, well, there's no quality of life. Because life, in its truest and fullest sense, is, you could describe it this way, we're looking for the full life, or the good life. We're looking for not just to exist, but to flourish. That's what everyone does. Everyone seeks that. Seeks life, full life, the good life, human flourishing. That's why everyone does what they do. So I know this morning that you are seeking life, I may not know how you are pursuing it, what has captured your attention and your focus to seek life in that sense, but I do know that it is your pursuit, and I know that it is the pursuit of everyone, the rich, the poor, the powerful, the lowly, the addict, the disciplined, the extrovert, the introvert, the evil, the good, and even the person who commits suicide. Why do they commit suicide? Ultimately, because they were seeking the good life, the full life, and couldn't find it, and so they think they will end their misery by taking their own physical life. And this makes sense because God has hardwired us to seek life, full life, not just physical existence, but to to be satisfied, to have a full life, to have a good life. And yet, in a fallen world, we can't seem to grasp it, which is the message of Ecclesiastes, the the preacher, Solomon, uh, the wisest man who ever lived, and the one who had the greatest opportunity to seek full life, and he runs through uh, stage by stage by stage of how he sought that full life under the sun and couldn't grasp it, which is why he uses the word vanity, which doesn't mean that it's not there, but it's like a soap bubble. You grasp it and it pops because that is how our pursuits at life, for life, go. So the question is, if God has hardwired us to seek this full life, this good life, this human flourishing, how does one grasp true life? And Jesus answers that question this morning in our text. He answers it in a surprising way, through death. You find full life, true life, only by dying which is why we titled the sermon this morning, You Must Die. If you want to actually live, if you want to actually have a full and true and meaningful and significant life, then you must die. That's the paradox of Christianity, and it's the one that Jesus himself unfolds for us this morning in our text. And the main idea of our text this morning is this. Disown yourself. Die shamefully to the world, and follow the suffering Christ to find true life. That is where Jesus is taking us this morning in the text. Disown yourself, die shamefully to the world, and follow the suffering Christ to find true life. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, what time is Jesus talking about? When is he starting to say these things? It reminds us of what we looked at last week of 
Peter confessing Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is the ultimate ruler over the whole world. He confessed uh, Jesus to be the Christ, and then Jesus confessed Peter to be the uh, uh, the foundation stone, one among many, but uh, the foundation stone on which he would build his church. And Jesus talks about building his temple assembly. That's what the word church represents there. And then he ended in verse 20, you remember by saying, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And uh, they kind of left us hanging, but this week it picks up why he said that, because they don't understand yet what it means to be the Christ. Because what Jesus shows in verses 21 through 23 is that the Christ, the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king, the one who will rule over the whole world, must die shamefully before life and glory. The Christ must die shamefully before life and glory. And so Jesus begins to unfold. Uh, the people in his day, the Jews, and Peter's an exemplar of that, uh, but the, the, they, they conceived of the Christ as the political ruler, the ruler of the king of the world, uh, the, the glorious one who would rule over the world, who would reestablish Israel and reestablish God's reign over the world, which is true. All of that is true. The Messiah is a political um, leader. He is a ruler. He will deal with the nations. He will judge them. He is the glorious king, and yet there's a significant component that they are missing, which is why Jesus begins to show, which is a very strong word, he's demonstrating to his disciples at the same time that Peter had just made this confession, to show it's not only about the, suffer, the glorious Christ, it's about the suffering Christ. And like we said in this whole section, this introduces a whole another turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. And in fact, the language here suggests that. Uh, it says that Jesus began, at that, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. That's actually the same sort of language that's used in Matthew 4.17. If you can turn back there if you want. You remember earlier on in the chapters of Matthew, in, uh, from Jesus' birth and on, he's proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's the right one. And then Jesus has this temptation with Satan, and then he succeeds. But in the end of that temptation, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, notice the language in chapter 4, verse 17. It says that this, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. And that has been his ministry. Uh, up until this time, really in chapter 16, Jesus' ministry has been saying, repent, turn your allegiance from sin and self, follow me as a disciple. He's offering, he's saying, look, Israel, if you repent, if you trust me, I'm going re- to restore the kingdom, I'm going to give it to you, I'm going to rule over you, Israel, and all the kingdoms of the world, and yet Israel and their leaders have rejected the Messiah. We've seen that already and so it introduces a new ch- a change, a shift, and that's what we've been saying in this portion in Matthew 16. Jesus is as far north as basically as he's going to go in, in Israel. He's outside of really the, pretty much the bounds of where the Jews are. And from this point on, he's going to head towards Jerusalem because now the focus is not on that message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the focus is on the Messiah beginning to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, which is the movement, the narrative movement, the geographical movement in the text from here on out, to Jerusalem and do what? Suffer many things from whom? From the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. That's the leadership of Israel. It would encompass people like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And be killed. And on the third day be raised. Now, what does it mean that he's showing his disciples? It's a pretty strong word. What is he showing them? Well, it, it very well might be that Jesus is saying, hey, guys, remember the Old Testament scriptures? And yes, you remember all those texts about a glorious Messiah, but also there are texts that show the Messiah must suffer. In Zechariah, in Isaiah, there are places that show the Messiah must suffer and die. So that's potentially what he's saying here. He's showing his disciples that he must. And that word must is important there in the original. It's the idea of divine necessity. This must happen. It's got to happen. But it is absolutely scandalous 
to the Jews at that time and to the disciples, as Peter will show, of the idea of a suffering Messiah. Look at verse 22. And Peter, Peter, so envision this. Jesus just says this. They're in the group there as the disciples. Peter, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples he has to go and suffer and die. Um, and notice what Peter does. Peter, the stone, remember that's what Peter means, the stone comes and takes Jesus aside. says, Jesus, come here. Let's, let's go over there for a minute. So he takes him aside, and, you know, they're probably face-to-face, you know, off to the side in a side conversation. Uh, Jesus, can I talk with you for a minute? And he, they're, the side-by-side, he, um, Peter's probably face-to-face, and this is what he does. He begins to rebuke him. He begins to rebuke the Messiah, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Peter, you know, he just got, uh, Jesus just told him, you're a rock, and on this uh, rock I'm going to build my church. The gates of Hades won't uh, prevail against it. So maybe uh, it seems like Peter's uh, now got a pretty high view of himself and thinks, well, I've got this pretty foundational role. Well, Jesus is mistaken, so let me take him aside. Let me correct him. It's arrogance that has him do this, and yet what's behind it, it's behind, what's behind it is it is unfathomable in that mindset, and for the Jews at that time, for a suffering Messiah. For the, you know, and Jesus didn't just say, I'm going to suffer and die. He also said, I'm going to be raised. But Peter didn't even hear that or doesn't even pay attention to what that's about. The idea that the Messiah, the, 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 the one who has the right to rule the world, would suffer and die is unfathomable. And so he rebukes him, far be it from you, Lord. That's wrong. Don't talk that way. This shall never happen to you. It's unthinkable. It will not happen. And what does Jesus do in response? Verse 23, but he turned. Now, wait a minute. If Peter just took him aside, and it's hard to imagine that conversation that Peter just had with Jesus, except other than face-to-face, isn't it? Like, Peter takes him aside, Jesus, let's talk for a minute, let's huddle, uh, and let's talk about this. That's probably a face-to-face conversation. So then what happens in verse 23 is significant when it says he turned. Jesus turns. What does that mean? Well, we're having a face-to-face conversation, but then he turns. So he's not actually, and he's going to say something. He's going to say something to Peter, but he's not saying it to him directly. It's kind of at a side angle, which corresponds with what Jesus is, says. Notice what he says. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, why in the world does he say that? Well, if you, your ears might perk up a little bit, um, more than just the shock value of saying to a disciple, get behind me, Satan, that should remind you of Matthew 4. Because if you turn back to Matthew 4, you remember in Matthew 4, we were just there, Jesus gets tempted by the devil, and he uses basically these exact same words. Uh, We can look at Matthew 4, starting in verse 8. And this is the final of the three temptations that the devil gives to Jesus. And notice what it says in verse 8 of chapter 4 in Matthew. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And maybe it's not even the idea of worship as much as it is uh, doing homage, uh, respecting Satan as the rightful ruler. And we talked about it at this time. Uh, does Satan actually have the right, uh, have the ability to make this offer? Well, yeah, because after the fall, and we see this in places like 1 John and 2 Corinthians 4, that with the fall of man, actually the guy who's in charge now of this world system is Satan himself. And behind all the world systems, behind all the kingdoms of the world, ultimately is Satan. But what's also going on here is that because Jesus is the Son of God, because he's the Messiah, remember that's the temptation, if you're the uh, uh, earlier temptations, if you're the Son of God, if you're this Messiah, well, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory are the rightful domain and rightful possession of the Messiah. 
And what is he really tempting Jesus with? He's saying, look, I'll, you can have these right here and now without what? Without the cross, without the suffering. Because the cross has been planned from the beginning. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, it's a must. It's got to happen that this Messiah is going to suffer and die. So what is Satan doing in chapter 4? He's saying, we can bypass all of that. We can short-circuit all of that. You can have all the kings of the world now in their glory if you will but recognize me. And what does Jesus say? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, which is exactly in Greek. It's the same words that Jesus says to Peter. Get behind me. Go away, Satan. Satan just means adversary. He is the ultimate adversary of God and his people. And that's why Jesus... He's saying this to Peter because Peter is functioning in what he is doing exactly the same way Satan did. Because what is Peter essentially saying? Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. You can be the king now. That's what, that, suffering will never happen to you. And so that's why Jesus says, get away, go away behind me, Satan. But there's one difference. Did you notice that little prepositional phrase behind me? Jesus in Matthew 4 just says to the devil, go away, Satan. Here, Jesus says, go away behind me, Satan. And remember what he did? Jesus is facing probably back to the disciples at this point, and Peter's off to the side. He's talking to Peter, but he's kind of off to the side, and it corresponds with what Jesus is saying, go away behind me. What is it really doing? Well, behind me and is, uh, is the, the language of discipleship. Or another way we could paraphrase it, get back in line. Get back in line. He's not just condemning him like, go away, like the devil go away. You're functioning in the role of Satan, Peter, and what you're saying and what you're asking me to do. But what's the call? The call is you went out in front to try to rebuke me, get back in line as a disciple. And he goes on and elaborates, you are a hindrance, or the word here is skandalon. It either means something like a trap or, uh, as used in places like Leviticus and Isaiah, it, it's, it's connected with the idea of a stumbling block, which makes a lot of sense because Jesus just said to Simon, you are a rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, my assembly, and that now, the way Peter's acting, he's a stumbling stone. Uh, he's out in front, right in front of Jesus where he shouldn't be, and he's causing, or at least Trying, it's a temptation for Jesus to not go to the cross. You're a stumbling block to me. Why? Why is he being a stumbling block? And here Jesus pegs Peter's motives in all of this. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, doesn't it sound good for Peter like, to, to be concerned about the Messiah? Oh, we don't want the Messiah to suffer. We don't want him to die and it kind of sounds nice on the surface of it, but really the motivation, and Jesus pegs it, is, Peter, the reason you're saying that is you're interested in the things of people. You're setting your mind, you're thinking about the things of people, not the things of God. You're thinking the thoughts that natural fallen human beings think. Why is that? Because Peter essentially wants, Peter doesn't want a suffering Messiah because that means one, a couple things. One, Peter's interested in the glory of the Messiah and the Messiah reigning and being right there along with him when the Messiah reigns. He's interested in that. But on the flip side, if the Messiah suffers, then his followers are going to suffer, including Peter. Very natural. There's nothing natural or supernatural. There's nothing. Uh, it's a very natural human thing to want to preserve your life, to want glory, to want position, to want prestige, to want a full life human flourishing, to go back to some of that language from before, but in this case, it goes against the things of God, because Jesus just laid out, here's the plan, it's a must, because it comes from God, it's already been laid out in the Old Testament, it's a must. You're not interested in the things of God, you're not setting your mind there, you're focused on the things of man. And as Matthew wrote this for his Jewish Christian audience, they would have just been as naturally scandalized as Peter of the idea of a suffering Messiah. What? The Messiah suffering and dying? How is that possible? And what Matthew's doing here for his audience is he's saying, well, if you're thinking that way 
and you land that way, and you don't follow the Messiah because of his suffering, because Jesus suffered and died, how can the Messiah do that? Then really, you're in the same boat as Peter. You're thinking the things of man, not thinking the things of God. If you're going to follow Christ, then your motivation it better not be just the things of man, the natural, human, fallen desires and motivations that motivate you to do anything in life as a fallen um, human creature. You've got to be motivated by the things of God and setting your mind on the things of God. Christ must die shamefully before life and glory. Why must he die? Because... Matthew one twenty one. you should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And to not have a suffering Messiah means that you don't have atonement for sin. And if you don't have atonement for sin, then you can't enter the kingdom. You can't know God. You can't know Jesus. Oh, it is necessary. The question to us is this. Is your view of Christ and your connection with him more in line with human thinking or God's thinking? You see, you can come to Christ, and you can seemingly be interested in Christ, like the crowds, but your thinking and your motivation could be totally human-based, and Jesus rejects that. Is Jesus there to make your life better, easier, or to make you feel better about yourselves? Those are common views of Jesus. Jesus is there to make your life better. He's there to make uh, your life easier. He's there to make you feel better about yourself. That's a human conception of Jesus. So do you see Jesus that way, or do you see God's plan and the necessity of Jesus dying for your sin, your sin? See, that's God's plan, that you are so corrupt and so sinful and have slapped the infinitely holy God in the face millions of times to deserve his wrath such that no one could possibly fix it. So what he needed to do to fix it, to to have that relationship again, is to uh, send God the Son down to become man, to humble himself, to die the most shameful and painful death imaginable on the cross because your sin is so bad. And we don't like to hear that any more than Peter did because that makes us face our sin. Jesus isn't there to make your life better, easier, or to make you feel better about yourself. Jesus is there first to, yes, be the glorious king over the world and to demand your allegiance, but also to deal with your sins so that you can know him and have allegiance in following him. The Christ must die shamefully before life and glory. And you're like, what about the glory part? It just seems like he he dies. What, what's, what about the glory part? There is the glory part, and we're going to actually see it in this next section. But what Jesus do is he pivots from talking about he must die shamefully before the world to then talking about you must die shamefully before life and glory. Verses 24 through 28. You must die shamefully before life and glory. See, what just happened with Peter and Jesus frames what he says from verses 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples. Now, mind you, what's a disciple? A disciple is a follower and a learner of Jesus. These are the ones who have ostensibly repented, placed their faith in Jesus, are growing in their faith in Jesus. So he's talking to what we would describe today as believers. A disciple is a believer, and a believer is a disciple. So he's talking to believers when Jesus says what he's about to say, or at least professing believers, because we know that, we know that Judas is there as well. But what does he say? Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me. It's the language of desire. You desire to come after me. And it's also the language of discipleship. In fact, it's the same prepositional phrase that Jesus just used, get away behind me, Satan. Now he's using that same prepositional phrase and he's saying, if you want to come after me, you want to be a disciple, you want to follow Jesus. And that is the motivation of Christianity. You want Jesus. You want to come after him. Not his benefits, not his goodies, him. 
And what Jesus says, if anyone, anyone, it's a blanket thing. If anyone, anyone who wants to come after me, or another way we might phrase it, since a believer is a disciple and a disciple is a believer, if you want to be a a, a Christian, if you want to know Jesus Christ, if you want to come after him, you want Jesus, well, then Jesus says, here's what that means. Anyone who wants to do that, let him deny himself. He actually says three things. Let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. It's three imperatives. They're not suggestions, they're commands. This is what you must do if you are going to follow Jesus, if you want to come after him. First, deny yourself. Now, when we hear this, I think what some of us do uh, is we think of the idea, oh yeah, this is like I need to deny myself a cookie, right? Like that's just not healthy for me. Okay, I want the cookie, but I, I can't have the cookie, so uh, I'm going to deny myself and not have the cookie. That's not this word. This is way more than that. In fact, we can see other places in Matthew to give us a flavor of this word. This word, and it has a close cousin, a very close cousin that basically means the same thing, are used multiple places in Matthew, and they're always used in relation to a person. Turn back to Matthew 10, and the reason we're doing this, I want to give you a flavor of this word denial, this kind of denial we're talking about here. Matthew 10, Jesus is also talking to his disciples here, and he says in Matthew 10, I'll read 32 and 33. He says this, Jesus says this, So everyone who acknowledges me, and it's the word confess here, whoever confesses me before men, I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. And here we go. Here's our words. Or actually, it's a synonym, but it's, the synonym basically means the same thing here. Verse 33, But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the idea. This idea of denial is refusing to recognize or acknowledge someone. I don't acknowledge that person. I I don't recognize that person. That's this kind of denial. And it's the same word that's also used of Peter's denial of Jesus in Matthew 26. Go to Matthew 26. We can get a better flavor of it there as well. There, it was the father refusing to acknowledge someone because they denied Jesus. And then we get Matthew 26, 34 to 35. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, and this is Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me, that's the same word, three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Same word. And all the disciples said the same. Well, we know what happens. Peter does deny Jesus. So what does that look like? Again, this gives us a flavor of our word and what Jesus is calling for, actually, in the kind of denial that Jesus is calling for back in Matthew 16. So let's read Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Let's read Jesus' denials, or Peter's denials of Jesus. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came up to him and said, You also were Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all. Same word. I do not know what you mean. That's what the kind of denial we're talking about here. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Then he went out and wept bitterly. Now the reason I took you there is that gives us a flavor of what Jesus is calling for in Matthew 16. But who's being denied in Matthew 16 yourself. In other words, what Jesus is calling for here is what we might call a disownment of self. 
that you refuse to recognize or acknowledge yourself. I don't know myself. I don't know who you're talking about. That goes way beyond the idea of I deny myself a cookie. This is like repudiation of self. You have to die. And Jesus amplifies that imagery with his next command. You repudiate yourself. What, What does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, we got kind of a flavor of it, but in part, Jesus is, he's addressing what Peter just did. What did Peter just do? He was setting his mind on the things of man and not the things of God. In other words, a natural fallen human will, going after what a natural fallen human will goes after itself rather than the things of God. So to deny yourself means my will no longer reigns. I don't know my will. I don't have self-will anymore. I have God's will, which is exactly what Jesus did in Gethsemane, isn't it? Not that Jesus repudiated himself in the same sort of way that we're talking about here because Jesus isn't fallen and he's talking to fallen people who would follow him here, but Jesus did say, not my will, but yours be done, which is exactly what Jesus is calling for in self-demile. It means the end of your will and only that God's will reigns. God's desires, God's plan, God's purposes reigns in your life. And what did Jesus do after he said that? He did the very next thing he calls his disciples to do in this series of commands and take up his cross. What does it mean to take up one's cross? This is, he's already talked about this in Matthew 10, 38, but he brings it up again here. And, uh, he, and I read this description. I'm going to read it again for you. I read this when we were back in Matthew 10. I'm going to read it for you here to get the picture of what crucifixion and taking up one's cross meant. Here's what it is. Crucifixion in the first century was a well-known and horrid form of Roman execution. The process generally began with tortures, including flogging. Then the one condemned would carry the horizontal bar which would be attached to the vertical post through town, perhaps with a placard denoting the crime. The horizontal bar would then be attached to the vertical post, and the condemned would be elevated into the air, often with feet and hands nailed to the cross. The cross would be placed outside of town, but in a public place. The condemned would either be naked or lightly clothed. The person would die of suffocation, exposure to the elements and animals, or loss of fluid. This horrific form of execution was normally reserved for slaves, brigands, and enemies of the state, seditious rebels. Only very rarely was a Roman citizen crucified. This form of execution was designed to be maximally tortuous and publicly shameful as a way of discouraging the behavior for which the person was crucified. That's what it means to take up your cross. It means that you start a death march that is the most shameful and painful death march in the eyes of the world that, the, that at this time that the, the human mind could fathom. And Jesus says, you want to come after me? Then first you repudiate, you disown yourself, you disown your will, and you take up your cross, meaning you, you are willing to die the most shameful, most painful death in the eyes of the world, and to what end? Third command, to follow me. Again, the motivation is Jesus, going after Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly say here that he's going to be crucified, but the logic works out. If you're going to follow the Christ, if you want to follow the Christ, then where is the Christ going? The Christ is going to the cross, and if you're a disciple, you must die. You must die in the same sort of way. Now, Jesus isn't saying that every single disciple is going to be crucified, but he is saying that you're going to live a life of denial, repudiating self, and dying a shameful and foolish death, painful death in the eyes of the world, up to and including crucifixion. And if you're not willing to do that, then you can't be Jesus' disciple. Now, at this point, the question is, why? Why in the world would you do this? Why in the world would you do this? Why in the world would you want to follow such a Messiah? And Jesus gives you reasons. 
Jesus gives you reasons in verses 25 through 28. He says this, For whoever wants, that for there, that little for is saying, I'm going to support what I just said with some reasons. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his life? Now, you see in this section that Jesus is doing a, a play on the word life. Uh, the word for life is suke in Greek, and all you need to know is that that's the word he's using here. So your translation might say life in some parts and soul in another, but it's the same word. It's life. And I don't think that Jesus is purely talking about physical life or immaterial life because God has constructed us and built us in such a way that we are physical and spiritual creatures united. And you also see this reality here, that second verse in 26, notice what he says. He's talking about saving his life, losing his life, and then notice what he says, for what will it be profited a man if he gains the whole world? What does that mean? It means talking about gaining all that the world has to offer, and he's equating that with gaining your life, saving your life that he talked about in verse 25. So I think what Jesus has in mind here is what we started with, the idea of the good life the full life, true life, not just physical existence, but flourishing. And Jesus starts his argument in verse 25, says, whoever wants to save his life, what does that mean? Self-preservation. At the very least, it means what Peter was doing, right? What is Peter doing? He wants to avoid suffering and pain, but he also wants glory, and uh, it, it, he, he is thinking the things of man, and so he's doing what Jesus is talking about here. He's saving his life. Not just in the sense of, I don't want to die physically, but I want the good life. I want to save my life. I want to pursue the good life in this eyes of the world. You do that, and you save your life in that sort of way, in the way that natural fallen human beings do, you're going to lose it. On the flip side... Whoever loses his life, like taking a, uh, repudiating self, taking up cross, and following Jesus, that looks like a loss of life in the eyes of the world. It looks like the most shameful and despicable and painful life. You lose your life, but not just lose it. For what? For my sake. Again, the motivation is Jesus himself. Whoever loses his life in the eyes of the world, for my sake, will find it. So the substance of Jesus' argument of why in the world would you disown yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, his basic argument is that's the way to gain your life in the long run. It's a dichotomy. You either are going to save your life in the here and now, and you're going to, you will... Notice the future, you will lose it, or you're going to lose your life in the eyes of the world for my sake now, and if you do so, you're going to find it. Jesus is motivating with the idea of, do you want the ultimate full life? Do you want to find true life? Then you've got to do it by dying in behalf of Jesus for his sake, because of him, because of his value. And then he expands on this in verse 26. There's another four. For, let me explain what I just told you. Uh, for, what will it be profit a man if he gains the whole world? Now that's the ultimate limit and the end of saving your life. You not only have self-preservation, but you have all the goods and the things that the world could possibly give you. And he says that, well, what, what's, what are you going to be profited if you gain the whole world and forfeit your life? In the sense of life as God would define it, life as Christ is defining it, you can gain all the world. If that were even possible to gain all that the world could give you, but you forfeit your life. If you run that balance sheet, who's going to win? If you run that balance sheet, what do you, you gain the whole world in this, in this life, you saved your life, you preserved your life, you gained all that the world could possibly give you, but you forfeited life as God would define it. What are you profited? Nothing. 
And actually worse than nothing, because as the rest of Matthew makes clear, if, um, if you lost your life, as God would define it, then you're actually going to experience his judgment for all eternity, his wrath aimed at you because you forsook him, you forsook Jesus. And so you may get as much as you could possibly get out of this life, and you just made a very, very foolish investment. You're not going to be profited anything. And in fact, you're going to have an infinitely negative balance for the rest of your existence. And then Jesus goes on a little bit more. What will a man give in exchange for his life? Uh, Jesus is talking about the same reality, the idea of the one who would save his life, uh, preserve his life, uh, live life to the fullest in the sense that the world would. And notice the person in the second part, who, what will a person give in exchange for a soul? In other words, the person doesn't have it. And the idea is, you realize at the end, I don't have my life, but I gained all this stuff from the world. What are you going to possibly give that you could get your life back? Nothing. There is no amount of gain in the way that the world would define gain, in the way that the world would define the good life, there's nothing you could possibly gain out of the world that you could give in exchange for your soul. And then he backs it up in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay to each person according to his practice. In other words, like, okay, Jesus, you're talking about in the long run, basically Jesus' argument is in the long run, you want profit, you want the full life, you want the good life, then you lose it for my sake. That's been his argument, and now he backs it up because he talks about the Son of Man, and we know the Son of Man is himself, but it's the Son of Man as that glorious king, that Daniel figure. Turn back to to Daniel 7 to see this. It's the figure from Daniel 7... In the context of Daniel 7, there's all these earthly kingdoms, these worldly kingdoms, and they're portrayed as horrifying beasts. They're not the way that the world should be. And then we get God's judgment. The Ancient of Days comes with his throne on earth for judgment. And in Daniel 7, 13, we see this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is going to come, the one who's going to succeed where Adam failed, and he's going to rule over the world on God's behalf in the perfect way. And he's going to possess the whole world, and he's going to be the judge. And Jesus has already painted this picture. Go to Matthew 13, the parables, the parables which talk about the coming of the kingdom. And you remember the parable of the tares. You remember the parable of the darnel and the wheat and the darnel, the lookalike weed. It looks like wheat, but it's not. They exist together until the end of the harvest. And Jesus says this in interpreting that parable to his disciples. He says in Matthew 13, 40, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he's going to repay each person according to what he has done. Do you notice, where did Jesus end the sequence in, chapter, uh, in 16, 21? He said, the, 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 uh, the Messiah is going to die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he stops. And then he gives the rest of the sequence down in 1627, doesn't he? Because that's not even the resurrection is not where it ends. It ends in glory because that's the path of the Messiah. The Messiah will be glorious 
but he goes through suffering to get and partake in that glory. And essentially, Jesus' argument is, play the long game because the Son of Man is going to come back in his glory, and then, and only then, is when he will repay to each person according to his practice. And the word here is practice. It's the idea of looking at a life that shows whether you tried to save your life in the eyes of the world or whether you lost your life for the sake of Christ. Your whole life will line up with one of those two things. The whole activity of your life, what you do in life, will show whether you sought to save your life in the eyes of the world or whether you lost it for the sake of Christ. And Jesus will repay. Jesus will judge in accordance with the activity of every person's life in that sense. And so Jesus' argument is, yeah, deny, disown yourself, take up your cross, give up your will, give up living for yourself, Give up directing your life. Let God direct your life. Let me direct your life. Die the most shameful and painful death you could possibly imagine. Be willing to and follow me. Why does it make sense? Because in the long run, you're going to be, to put it crassly, the winner. That's the better investment because the Son of Man will come in his glory the Son of Man will go through suffering and pain and be resurrected and will come back in glory. So if you want glory and you want the full life, then you die now. And notice Jesus backs it up even a little bit more in verse 28. Everything hinges on the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, as Daniel 7 talked about, as Matthew 13 talks about, as Jesus has framed it. And so what does he say in verse 28? Truly I say to you, and he's talking to his disciples that are right there, that there are some standing here, there are some standing here who will not taste death. And the idea is they will certainly not taste death. It's emphatic. They'll certainly not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What's he saying? He's saying, uh, some of you... It's a plurality. It's not just one person. But some of you that are standing here, you're going to get to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, uh, some of you will not taste death until the uh, Son of Man comes in his kingdom. He didn't say that. He said, some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Meaning what? Jesus, at the very least, has to give some of his disciples that are right there a snapshot of the coming kingdom. Why would he do that? To show that it's worth it. Right? To, to show that to his disciples, those he's calling, he's calling them, you've got to repudiate yourself, you've got to disown yourself, you've got to be willing to die on uh, the most shameful and painful death that the world can conceive of. And you're going to do it because the Son of Man is going to come in his glory. Well, let me give you a foretaste of that picture so that you know that it's worth it. And you're like, well, when did that happen? Well, thankfully, we'll see next week it happened six days later. The transfiguration gives the snapshot, the foretaste of the future to let Peter, James, and John know, yeah, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. And you're like, well, why didn't he just tell it to all the disciples. Here, I'll give you all a snapshot of the kingdom so that you know it's worth it. Because this is the principle of witnesses. Peter, James, and John are going to see it, and they're going to say, yeah, guys, it's worth it. It's totally worth it. And they're going to function as witnesses to the rest of the disciples because that's how the disciples and the apostles function for us. They, this is what Peter is going to say in 2 Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. We saw his glory. We saw his majesty. It is totally worth it to disown yourself, die shamefully to the world, from the world, a painful death because of what's coming. The long game is worth it. You see, Christianity is about denial, but it's not ultimately about denial. Yes, we repudiate self because we know that our fullest life, our, the most joyful life, 
is not in my will being done, but in God's will being done. And that that life is coming. It's not here and yet. I'm not looking for my best life now. I am not looking for a fullness of life here and now. Yes, there are good gifts that God gives and enjoys, but I'm not, look, I'm not, I'm not surprised when life stinks in being a Christian because that's exactly what Jesus says and because I'm playing the long game. And that's what Jesus' disciples must do. So the questions and application for us, have you disowned yourself? Do you say about yourself, and what we mean here is the natural, human, sinful self that we all are, have you disowned that person? Do you say, I don't know that person? I don't know myself. I don't know that man. I don't know that woman. And this is so countercultural because think about what the world, our culture says. Because this, and it's not just our culture, it's all cult, human cultures that have said it from the garden till now. The world says, be yourself. Jesus says, disown yourself. The world says, love yourself. Jesus says, lose your life for my sake. The world says, you do you. Jesus says, take up your cross. The world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. Have you disowned yourself? Have you given up your self-will? And does Jesus determine your life? That's what it means. And when you understand what that means, to give up my own will, to give up the own direction of my life, and to let Jesus totally take charge and determine what I do with life, it, you can, when you start to feel anxious and scared about that, that's when you know, okay, that's what Jesus is calling me to. I don't rule my life, Jesus does not my will, it's Jesus. He determines my life. He's my boss. He's my Lord. He's my master. And here's the fact, if, here's the reality. If you have disowned yourself, it will work its way out into a thousand implications into your daily life. You'll ask yourself the question, if I have repudiated myself and Jesus determines my life, then I must do blank in this situation. If I've repudiated myself and Jesus determines my life, then I must refuse myself sin in this situation because the long game is worth it. If I have repudiated myself and Jesus determines my life, then I will share the gospel in this situation because Jesus is worth it. I, I will love my family. I will do any number of things that show that Jesus, you've repudiated self and you're loving Christ and he, his will determines your life. Have you disowned yourself? And then the next question, have you taken up your cross? Are you on a shameful death march in the eyes of the world? Or does your life look pretty good in the eyes of the world? Suppose some random kind of natural fallen, unbelieving human being comes up to you, and let's suppose they look at your life and say, yeah, it looks, looks like a nice life, it, you know, nothing too different. then you're not on a shameful death march in the eyes of the world. Your wife looks pretty good in the eyes of the world. You're saving your life just like everyone else in the world is. Do you do things because you're a follower of Jesus that looks stupid in the eyes of the world? Does being a Christian cost you something? You know, someone walks up to you and looks at your life and like, why in the world are you spending so much time uh, with uh, those people at church? Why, why are you giving money to them? Why are you uh, not out on Sunday mornings, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing windsurfing or doing this, that, or the other thing? Whatever you can imagine, right? But if someone just looks at your life like, why are you doing that? It's dumb. Then you know, okay, this is a publicly shameful life. I do these things because I'm a Christian. I do these things because I follow Jesus. And yes, it looks foolish in the eyes of the world. And ultimately... It will be painful. It will cost you something, not only in terms of time and energy and money, but it could cost you your very life, up to and including crucifixion. Are you willing to painfully suffer and die, literally, on a cross, to follow Jesus and do what he wants you to do? Because of what? Because Jesus is the treasure. Because he is the treasure and the one we are following. Are you following Jesus or are you trying to get Jesus to follow you? So many times we make decisions in life because it's what we want, as, and I'm talking about as Christians. Sometimes we make, so many times we make decisions in our life because it's what we want, 
And then we try to baptize it to make it sound as if it's God's will when it's really just our own selfish desires, exactly like Peter. And then we're just thinking the things of human beings and we're not, we're not following Jesus. We're not having Jesus' will determine our will. We're not having his desires determine our desires. We're not actually following him. We're just pretending. And it's all about this. Are you pursuing the right definition of the good life? Because I know you're going to pursue the good life. That's just how God's hardwired us. So the question is not whether you are pursuing the good life or not. That's what you are pursuing. Are you pursuing the right definition of the good life? Are you following the world's definition of the good life and laboring for that? If you are, you're a fool. You could gain everything that this world has to offer, and if you're pursuing this def- that definition of the good life, the same one that the world has, you're going to lose it forever. You're going to lose the good life as God defines it, as Christ defines it. So don't do that. Are you following Jesus' definition of the good life, which includes suffering and shame now for the glory of Jesus and his kingdom in the future? That's what we're playing for. The stakes couldn't be higher to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to be in his kingdom in the future, that is why we give it all now. Does the future change what you do now? We live in light of the future. Does the reality of Jesus' judgment of you change what you do now? Is knowing and following Jesus your definition of the good life, no matter what that costs you? You see, the activity of your life, one way or the other, that's what Jesus is going to examine at the end of days. He's going to say, all right, let's look at all of the thousand actions or millions of actions that this person took, and let's look at the millions of actions that this person took, and in this case, it's going to reflect you tried to save your life in the eyes of the world, and in this case, it's going to say, yeah, you gave it because you treasured me, you love me, and that meant you lost your life for the sake of Christ, and I know you're mine. I've saved you. Does the activity of your life reflect the life of a disciple as Jesus describes it here and in the rest of Matthew? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like. It is according to the activity of your life that Jesus will judge you when he comes as the supreme king. Disown yourself. Die shamefully to the world and follow the suffering Christ to find true life. If you haven't done that, you're like, you realize, I've never done that before. Now, Jesus has in mind a kind of a once-for-all denial, but like I said, that works its way out into a thousand implications of life, but you realize, I've never surrendered. I've never repented. I've never trusted Christ. Then do it, friend, do it today. Talk to me, talk to Steve, talk to Jim, talk to your neighbor that's in your pew next to you. Because that's what Jesus calls you to. Repent. Repent of a, turn your allegiance from sin and self. Die. And follow Christ. Because that's when you'll find true life. Let's pray. God, it's only by your intervening grace for any of us to see the sun, to be able to do this. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glories of Christ and his kingdom that are worth everything. And that we would not just mouth it as if I know that's the right thing to say, but that it's real and that it changes our lives. Lord, help us to die, to give up trying to rule our own lives. That's what we naturally do. We want to be king, but you're king. And we pray for grace to die. And we pray for courage and grace to die shamefully to the world 
to live a life that looks stupid in the eyes of the world, to live a life that would ultimately even include something like crucifixion because you and your kingdom are so worth it. And Lord, we pray that that would show itself in the millions of decisions that we make every day that you will take into account at the judgment seat. And we pray that our lives would truly reflect a life given for you. We know we can't do that in and of ourselves. It's only by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to make that happen. So we pray for that. And we pray that we would speak the gospel accurately to those around us, that we would not only say that you died to save sinners, which is absolutely true, but we would also say it will cost you everything. Do you know that so that you might follow Christ because he is so worth it? Lord, help us to be accurate in our portrayal of the gospel and the cost of discipleship, we would ask. Help us to follow as disciples. Pray that we would live these things out in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand with me for a benediction.